0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com/notseenradio. That's P A T R E O N.com/notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu/ips. From PRX, the public radio exchange, and Sandberg Media LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We're speaking today with Brian Chmicek, professor and dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, The Rome of Peter and Paul, A Pilgrim's Guide to New Testament Sites in the Eternal City. We're also talking about the Institute of Pastoral Studies itself and how it is looking to address the needs of the church in the 21st century. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Brian Shmisek, professor and dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. Prior to his time at Loyola, Dr. Schmiesik was the founding dean of the School of Ministry at the University of Dallas. Today, we'll be talking about the Institute for Pastoral Studies, as well as his recent book, The Rome of Peter and Paul, A Pilgrim's Guide to New Testament Sites in the Eternal City. Brian Schmesek, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Hey, thank you. Great to talk with you.
0: So I'm interested, first of all, to start out by talking about Rome and in particular this book that you have, The Rome of Peter and Paul. First of all, what was it that made you want to write this book and what was it that brought
1: you to this project? Oh, those are great questions. So uh, when I was a A graduate student, I did a degree in classics, you know, Greek and Latin. And I did that because I needed to shore up my Greek before I pursued the uh, doctorate in biblical studies. And so I've always had a love for the the classics. And then uh, when I was at the University of Dallas, they had a Rome campus there. They they still do. And uh, we we launched this summer program in Rome for graduate ministry students. And uh, I would teach New Testament there. And uh, other professors would teach other courses like church history or liturgy and sacraments. And this summer program uh, was really a lot of fun. (laughs) As you can imagine, spending three weeks or more uh, in Rome, uh, touring these different sites and and learning more about uh, background material to not only the Colosseum, but even St. Peter's itself. And so uh, we used to just write up these notes for students because they would uh, ask, you know, consistently ask similar questions. And so we wrote up these notes and year after year after year, the notes got bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and finally, uh, I just turned this into a, into a book.
0: Well, and so when people think about Rome, when I think about Rome, I think about
1: basically ruins, mm-hmm. but Rome is a modern city, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. It's a, it's a modern city. there have been, um, uh, it's, it's actually undergone a lot of growth, especially in the last few decades, uh, especially past World War II, ever ever since World War II. It's really grown tremendously. And so – but but there are so many things in the city that still pertain to uh, first century times. And that's why I call the book The Rome of, of Peter and Paul. Um, oftentimes, you know, people go there and they're familiar with some of the legends and they say, oh, St. Peter's Basilica, this is, this is where – This is where uh, St. Peter was buried.
0: And so what I'm hearing you saying is that when somebody gets off the plane, they're going to get an overlap of the modern city and the ruined city both at the same time. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah,
1: that's exactly it. I mean, I even say in in the preface, with so many books about Rome, do we really need another one? You know, but you can approach that city from so many different angles. You know, archaeologists, historians, Catholics look at it a certain way. Protestants look at it another way. You know, you can look at it in terms of military history. So we, I, I just thought to myself, what about if we look at it in terms of the Rome of Peter and Paul? You know, what are the New Testament sites in the city that still have something to do with, with Peter and Paul? And so perhaps surprisingly, it's a site even like the Colosseum. You know, the Colosseum was built uh, right after the destruction of the uh, Jerusalem temple. (laughs) And and people believe that it was built with uh, the slaves that the Romans brought over from Judea. And so those folks, you know, were were building the Colosseum. And after they built the Colosseum, uh, they built the Arch of Titus. You know, so both of those monuments are from the first century, basically from a a couple decades after the martyrdom of, of both Peter and Paul. And so when we talk about
0: aspects of the city that would be, that would be uh, specific to Peter and Paul, I mean, the, the Colosseum has a tie in with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but what are some of the, the pieces of Rome where
1: a, a visitor could really get a sense of their histories? there, are still in the city. Mm-hmm. So one, one fun place to visit, it's called the, to take the Scavi tour. You know, you've, We've all heard of the term excavation. You know, the scavi is uh, the root word there. And so you can go to St. Peter's and you go underneath St. Peter's and they've had uh, excavations done there since about the 1930s. So they were carrying on these excavations in secret because at the time, uh, you know, the Nazis were were there, you know, and, and uh, it was a fascist state and uh, the Pope wanted to keep it all very quiet. But now you can go down and see these um excavations and you can find you know what they what they call you know the tomb of Peter sometimes they call it the the trophy you know the um, it's referred to sometimes in Eusebius as the trophy of Gaius because Gaius makes reference to to this place where where Peter was buried and so we can see that very location right underneath the altar of uh, St Peter's. that's amazing and so when when a person is going there as a person of faith.
0: What do they have to watch out for? In particular, I'm thinking about you know people coming up to you hawking you know here's a piece of the True Cross or you know to what right. extent what, to what extent is is what we see in Rome uh, actual and and reliable and to
1: what extent is it flimflam? I guess well yeah there's a there's a quote I use in the book uh, that says you know even if it's not true it's a great story you know <laughs> which is which is in a, based on an Italian saying so most of these stories are really. Stories you know, so we look at uh, St Peter's, we see the place where again, by legend, you know Peter was buried, but then also in the book there's a, a site called San Pietro in Montorio, where by legend, Peter was crucified you know and buried and so there are there are lots of different places around Rome you know that claim to be these historic sites, and of course they can't all be correct you know St John Lateran claims to have the head of Peter and paul uh saint peter's claims to have you know the, the skull of of peter's so you know they can't all be correct but uh, as we say in the book and as the italians say even if it's not true it's a good story and so you mentioned that where you were teaching
0: before the university of dallas it had a a, a program in rome uh, you're now teaching at the Institute for Pastoral Studies. Does that also have a program in Rome? Are you able to go and visit Rome and sort of stay current with these things? Or is this just something that you were writing from that previous experience?
1: No, that, that's exactly it. So uh, Loyola also has a program in Rome. Uh, the University of Dallas had its campus out on the Via Appia, you know, which is the very road that um, uh, Paul would have taken into the city based on uh, Acts of the Apostles. So that was really fascinating to have a campus site there. Now, in uh, for Loyola, we have a campus uh, in an area called Monte Mario, which is just north of the Vatican a little bit, and so we're we're very close to these different sites, and it's frankly much easier to get around because we're right there in the city. So it's uh, it's really been a pleasure to be part of Loyola because um, at the time they had summer programs, uh, but they did not include the Institute of Pastoral Studies. So Loyola had programs in law in uh, business, in social work, and education, all all going to the, what they call JFRC, the John Felice Rome Center. But IPS was not represented there. And so that was uh, something that I was able to do here is to to launch that summer program for our IPS students. And I think it's been well received. And when you say it's been well received, characterize that for us. So what a lot of a lot of student engagement or? Yeah, I think we have about 20 students every summer who who go on that program uh, We have other ministry students from other schools as well you know who can uh, who sign up for that and, and attend as well so we've got students from um, like Seattle University from LMU from different schools that would also participate in this and again it's uh, it's a chance to really uh, see what we call read from the text of the city you know? and what do you mean by that when you say read from the text of the city character? that means that we're we're living and experiencing the city of Rome. So it's not it's not merely, you know, reading a book or reading the New Testament, but we are actually, you know, going to these different sites. We're standing in the Colosseum, you know, we're, we're going up to the Arch of Titus. Uh, We're going to San Pietro Montorio, you know, looking out over the city of Rome and imagining what would it have been like, you know, for Peter to have been crucified here. And then the next day we go to St. Peter's, you know, we say now imagine, you know, if Peter were crucified over in this site, you know, so uh, it's really it's a fun experience to be part of that and to to actually witness and experience and feel these sites.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Brian Schmiesek, professor and dean of the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, The Rome of Peter and Paul, A Pilgrim's Guide to New Testament Sites in the Eternal City. We're also talking about the changing face of Catholic education in the 21st century, looking at the Institute for Pastoral Studies as it steps out as a leader in lay education for parishes across the nation. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Brian Schmiesek, professor and dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, The Rome of Peter and Paul, A Pilgrim's Guide to New Testament Sites in the Eternal City. And we're talking about the Institute itself. So let's turn and talk about the Institute for Pastoral Studies. So when somebody says that they're going to the Institute for Pastoral Studies, are they going to a seminary? Are they going to a graduate school? What are they getting when they come to the Loyola Institute for Pastoral Studies here in Chicago?
1: That's a really good question. You know, one of the things that uh, I talk about is, we're called an institute. We're an institute of pastoral studies, and yet we're degree granting. So in effect, we we are a school in everything but name. (laughs) So um, many other Jesuits uh, universities have a school of theology and ministry, you know, that that do just what we do. So we grant degrees. We have seven different degree programs, pastoral studies, divinity, social justice, Christian spirituality, uh, just a whole host of of programs that we offer folks and they come here and earn a graduate degree in one of those different areas. And usually, uh, you know, they're going out to either work in the church or do what we call extra ecclesial ministry, ministry outside the church. Uh, and in fact, more of our students now are working outside the bounds of the church, uh, than ever. We also have, you know, being at a Catholic university, people often assume that, uh, all of our students are catholic or all of our courses are catholic and that's actually not the case we're we're only at about 70% catholic in terms of students and uh, we like to think that that's a that's a good thing for us is that we encourage uh, a dialogue among all different religious traditions and we have catholics we have protestants we have some jewish students we have buddhists we have some muslims and it's it's contributes to a very rich learning environment to have that diversity of perspectives.
0: Now, when you have these diverse students come here who may be Protestant or who may not be from the Christian tradition at all, why would they come to a Catholic school? And what would they find here? And what what value would it be to students to come to a Catholic institution
1: to study that that seems counterintuitive on the face of it? Right. So some of our programs that that would attract people who are not Christian uh, would be primarily two. We have a pastoral counseling program you know, that's uh, for people who, who want to be counselors and yet take, let's say, the spiritual quest seriously. And then we also have a program in social justice, and that also attracts um, larger numbers of folks who are not Catholic or not not Christian. So those people want to go out and do good in the world. What we find is that our students self-identify as change agents. <laughs> they want to go out and make the world a better place. And they know something about the Jesuit spirit of seeking God in all things, the Jesuit spirit of going out to the margins, the Jesuit spirit of being men and women for others. And I think that's attractive, even to someone who's not Catholic or not even Christian. Now,
0: you just talked about the Jesuit spirit, and some of my listeners are not going to understand what that means. And so when we're talking about the Jesuit tradition, the Jesuit spirit, locate that for us, put that into a context for us.
1: Right. so, So the Jesuits are a are a society that was founded by Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century. And Ignatius of Loyola had uh, a number of things, you know, that that characterized him. But but one of them uh, eventually came to be this desire to educate leaders, to educate leaders to be men and women for others. And so... Uh, that's something that uh, there are 28 Jesuit colleges and universities in the United States, and that's something that each of these 28 do. And Loyola University Chicago is one of them. Any, as you can imagine, uh, Ignatius of Loyola. You know, anything that has the word Loyola in it is going to be Jesuit. Okay, and so
0: when a person is coming and and in that in that atmosphere, men and women for others expand that for us. When when we've you. you You've used that a couple of times in the conversation. What does that look like in practical effect? Being men and women for others, or being trained to be men and women for others—is mm-hmm. that kind of a feel-goody yeah. social justice thing, or what is that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes uh, religious people, th- there can be a critique launched against them. I won't say whether it's you know true or false. Everyone can decide for themselves. You know that that we're so busy praying. You know that the what what difference does it make? You <laughs> know, and and so what uh, Ignatius really encouraged is people to do is go out and make a difference. You know, it's faith in action. That's another one of the Jesuit taglines, right? Faith in action. So it's not enough simply to pray that your brother or sister has something to eat. It's really as important, maybe more important to go out there and help feed that person, <laughs> help figure out the, the systems and the structures that are preventing that person from, from having their daily bread. And that's really what um, I think being men and women for others is all about, so that we're not simply people of prayer, although we are, (laughs) but we are also people of action. And so you mentioned earlier
0: it's an institute, but a person can get degrees from this institute. When I think of an institute, I think of like the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, where scholarly papers are produced and where the the cutting edge of research is happening. Is that also a characterization of what's going on at IPS? Do you produce white papers? Are you are you are you at the cutting edge of, of theological discourse, or is this is this? A graduate
1: school that is sort of still searching for its identity in that sense. Well, that's a, that's another really good question. So, IPS was founded in 1964, and so uh, for those who are are not Catholic, that was in the midst of Vatican II, where the um, Church was really rethinking, you know, who it was in this modern age, and the idea was uh, to go back to the sources. They called it a resourcement, you know, and an updating, aggiornamento. And so they were going back to the sources and updating themselves to equip themselves for the being church in the modern world. And while that was going on from 1962 to 65, the Jesuits, not too surprising, were back here at, at Loyola and saying, we need to bring the fruits of this council you know, to the people here. And so before the council even closed, the Institute of Pastoral Studies had been founded to educate folks in what was going on in Vatican II. Now that institute you know, kept going. It started as a a summer's only program, but uh, it continued to grow and grow and grow. And In 1989 is when it crossed the threshold from becoming primarily um, religious women, you know, like sisters and priests and folks like that, uh, to becoming lay-centered, so that there were more lay people here beginning in 1989 uh, than prior. And since 1989, now we're predominantly lay people. And uh, again, it's for those who are driven maybe by faith, driven by a higher calling or a higher purpose, who want to be change agents in the world, who want to go out and make a difference in the world. So not necessarily people that
0: want to become priests. So this wouldn't be a a training ground for pastors and priests, but it would be a training ground for religiously motivated civic leaders.
1: Well, yeah, so... One thing that's interesting is in the Catholic Church, uh, they send people who want to be priests to seminaries, right? And so the Institute of Pastoral Studies is not a seminary. <laughs> we're not educating uh, people to be priests. But again, part of the wisdom, I think, of founding the IPS is that the insights from Vatican II were not limited to priests. The, the idea was that we want to share this insight. We want to share this theological education with those who are not priests, in the Catholic Church, uh, mostly, you know, up until the Vatican Council too, uh, theological education was really limited to priests. <laughs> why Why would anyone else need to study the Bible? Why would anyone else even need to study theology? You know, like even the sisters, you know, were getting degrees in math, you know, in science and uh, were becoming teachers, you know, or they were becoming nurses. They'd get a degree in nursing. Uh, you know, they weren't theologians, you know, prior to Vatican II. It was after Vatican II that uh, IPS and the church at large opened up its theological resources to lay people so that lay people could now earn degrees in theology. Now, one thing that's fascinating about IPS, I think, is that we we do satisfy many ordination requirements for women (laughs) in other faith traditions. And so even though we don't educate Catholic priests, we're educating many women who are being ordained in their own tradition. Does that ever get you into trouble? Because I know that the Catholic
0: Church doesn't have women priests. So, but that never is a is a crossing a line for the religious
1: authorities. Well, they're not they're not being ordained Catholics. You know, they're being ordained in their own tradition. So we have a MDiv degree, a Master of Divinity degree, and we've had uh, quite a few women who have received that degree and been ordained in their own tradition and our pastoring churches here in the in the Chicagoland area. Now, I'm aware that uh, particularly in the last maybe 25
0: years, there's been a shift in the Catholic Church towards more emphasis on lay leadership, more emphasis on, you know, and this is partly due to a shortage of priests, but also partly due to some of that spirit of Vatican II that you talked about earlier. It seems to me like IPS, the Institute for Pastoral Studies, it's well positioned to be a leader for this new movement towards lay leadership
1: in the church. Is that a fair characterization? Oh yeah, I think so. And I think it's been part of that movement for, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, any parish today um, of course, you know, has a pastor has probably even an associate pastor, but the people who attend and who make the church really function are often lay people. I mean, I came here from, from Texas and uh, they have bigger parishes in Texas, but they had one parish that we belonged to, 8,000 registered families, you know, one priest. And I used to joke with him that, that uh, he has the size of an ancient diocese right there. You know, he would have been a bishop in the year 200 to have a, to have a congregation like that. So, but it's the lay people who are really running that parish in particular, uh, they had a weekly bulletin of sixteen pages, you know, of all the activities that were going on, and there's no way that one priest, you know, could could run all of that. I mean, the lay people were doing the hospital visitations, lay people were doing the RCIA, lay people were leading the youth groups, lay, lay people were doing marriage preparation. It just wasn't possible for one priest to be present to all the activities that were going on in that parish, and so again, from a Vatican II point of view. You know, baptized Christians are called to live out that spirit of Christ in the world.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Brian Schmiesek, professor and dean of the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, The Rome of Peter and Paul, A Pilgrim's Guide to New Testament Sites in the Eternal City. We're also talking about the changing face of Catholic education in the 21st century, looking at the Institute for Pastoral Studies as it steps out as a leader in lay education for parishes across the nation. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Brian Schmisek professor and dean of the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, The Rome of Peter and Paul, A Pilgrim's Guide to New Testament Sites in the Eternal City. We're also talking about the work of the Institute itself and how it helps to train lay leaders for 21st century needs in the Catholic Church. Could I ask you a little bit about your own faith journey and a little bit about kind of where... uh, being the head of a school that trains people in in religious vocations where that sits with you in terms of
1: your own journey of faith yeah i mean to me i am most impressed by our own students <laughs> and and their faith lives, you know, whether, whether they have faith lives or, or uh, you know, how they articulate that, that really opens up my own horizons. So when you say that you're most impressed with the students and the spiritual lives of the students, flesh that out for me. Tell me what that means. Yeah, I mean, to me, um, learning about God, you know, seeing how God works is really learning about God through other people you know, and seeing how they uh, are articulating their own relationships with God or their own faith lives. And uh, to me, that's the whole story of the scriptures as well. That's all of church history. You know, it's human beings trying to articulate how they encounter the sacred in their lives. Here at IPS, every one of our degrees requires what we call contextual education. It's a three semester long experience where somebody is getting into you know what they hope to be doing as a career so whether that's going to be a hospital chaplain you know where they're going to be spending time in a in a hospital setting or maybe in a hospice setting whether if they're going to be working you know uh, on the homelessness issue and so being part of this institute really leading this institute and seeing the kinds of people that we attract as faculty the kinds of students that we attract the, the kinds of alumni that we have really opens up the horizons that I have about God and how God acts and lives and breathes in the world. And so were you raised Catholic? Are you a cradle Catholic or did you convert to Catholicism? No, I, I was raised Catholic in, uh, in North Dakota. And what was, <laughs> was that like? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, it, was, it was very much of a Catholic upbringing. Uh, we moved to Fargo, North Dakota when I was in fourth grade. And my parents then sent me to a Catholic school. And I went to Catholic school all the way through high school, graduated from Fargo, Shanley, which, uh, you know, is named after Bishop Shanley, the first bishop of Fargo, North Dakota.
0: And is there a large Catholic community in Fargo, North Dakota?
1: Well, there aren't really large communities (laughs) in North Dakota anywhere. (laughs) But uh, I mean, there's 600,000 people in the entire state, you know, and so here we are in the center of Chicago. Uh, and, and it's hard to imagine, you know, like where you draw the circle to get 600,000 people here in Chicago. But in in North Dakota, it's the entire state, you know, that's 600,000 people. And uh, most of the people that I knew uh, were Catholic because we were very involved in the church. We went to the Catholic schools, you know, Catholic high schools. And so that was – definitely part of my upbringing. And so
0: how did that influence you? How did that upbringing in that Catholic community in Fargo, North Dakota, how did that influence the trajectory of your studies? And how did that influence the trajectory of kind of where you landed? Now, let's start with your studies. Uh, As you went on into college and went on into graduate school, how did that faith kind of animate and shape your direction there?
1: Yeah, I think I remember back in high school, I would have questions uh, of my parents and others. I would say, why do we say that Mary's ever-virgin, you know how we say that in the confitior, "Blessed say Mary ever-virgin, when the New Testament doesn't say that. <laughs> the New Testament says she was a virgin up to this point, you know, that she gave birth to Jesus. And oftentimes, you know, my responses left me, I mean, the responses I received left me wanting <laughs> and I would have more questions. And uh, and so I just began this series of continuing to ask more and more questions and delve deeper and deeper into it. And uh, as I said, eventually earned a, the, an M.A. In, in theology and one in classics and then wanted to do the Ph.D. in biblical studies because I was trying to get as close as I could to the source material of what I've considered to be source material, you know, the scriptures. And uh, and I wanted to read the scriptures and the quote original and see what uh, you know what they said and as you did that did you begin to
0: as you went kind of farther and farther into these studies did you begin to find some of the answers that you were that you were seeking when you were younger i mean you mentioned for example the confidior and the notion of mary ever virgin so let's take that as as one possible example but there may be others of things that you thought about when you were younger did you ever find uh, a good platform on which to answer those questions, or
1: did those did those questions become less relevant as you grew in your studies? So I can remember being a, a graduate student at CUA, Catholic University of America. That's where I earned my PhD. And there was a, a meeting of the Catholic Biblical Association. And at that meeting, uh, John Meyer, who's now at Notre Dame, he was there giving a talk on the brothers and sisters of Jesus. <laughs> and and uh, so I was happy to be in that environment. And I could ask him, you know, certain questions. Now, his his paper was, of course, very, you know, well-written and uh, well-received, and it had since been published in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly. And I share it now with students uh, in my New Testament, Old Testament classes, uh, as a, as an example of how biblical scholarship is done. But, you know, basically in, in that paper, you know, he demonstrates that... Uh, According to the evidence in the New Testament, you know Mary was a virgin until she had a till she had Jesus <laughs> and uh, and afterwards it seems like there were brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now and then he says, you know in the second part of the article, now Catholics by faith say that there's some other explanation for this. He says, but there are hundreds of millions of other Christians who will accept that Mary had other children. And he said, so, he said, on the hierarchy of truths, which we, you know, delineated at Vatican II, this is an area on which we can agree to disagree. You know, and uh, and I thought to myself, what a wonderful way of addressing that. That's you charitable. That's right. yeah. yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> so, almost a pastoral response to the question. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Now, oftentimes, and I grew up, you know, in the South and, and." sometimes there, there is a, a sense that when someone goes for higher levels of religious education, that it will draw them away from their faith. And so the evangelical circles that I was familiar with when I grew up were, were in some ways hesitant or suspicious of the kind of graduate education that you have had. And so I'm going to ask you on behalf of all of those people who want <laughs> to know, um, as you have grown in your knowledge of the faith— has that been detrimental to your faith or has it
1: been a compliment and has it been a buttress to your faith? That's a really good question. And, I, and let me answer by saying this. So I remember when, again, when I was in graduate school, friends of mine were, were moving on to do a PhD in theology, maybe or some, some other degree. And I was pursuing the PhD in biblical studies. And I remember when I made that shift, you know, from theology to biblical studies, And some of my friends said, don't do biblical studies. It'll destroy your faith. You know, and I thought, that's crazy. You know, I mean, how can studying the Bible destroy my faith? What was their fear? Why did they say that? Well, I I don't know why they said that. But I I mean, I've I've encountered that kind of thinking before, you know, again, in my own uh, graduate school days, you know, people thinking that. That studying something too deeply you know, is going to somehow destroy faith. Now, I, I will say that uh, I don't have the same faith today that I had in graduate school. Right? It's grown and developed like any adult believer. You know, Their faith is going to grow and develop and change. It's not, the same, it's not the same faith. But I wouldn't say that it's destroyed it. I would say that it's, it's uh, changed it for the better. And so if if you
0: are able to speak to some of our listeners who might be contemplating uh, going into graduate work or going into studying the history of the Bible or the history of theology,
1: uh, what sort of advice would you give to them Uh, besides coming to the Institute for Professional Studies to do it? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I would say be open-minded. You know, again, uh, just if I can get back to that point about, you know, one's faith. I remember when I was first learning Greek, I wanted to read the New Testament. That's why I was learning Greek. And so when when uh, in the second year, when it was time to pull out our Greek New Testaments, you know, I had gone to the store, bought my Greek New Testament at the bookstore, opened it up. The top half of the page is all Greek. The bottom half of the page is all these other signs and uh, little uh, just kind of numbers and maybe even some Hebrew letters. And I thought, what what in the world's going on with the bottom half of the page? And I asked my professor about that. And she said, well, the bottom half of the page, that's telling you what all the different texts say. You know, it's a manuscript tradition. And I said, well, I don't care what all the other manuscripts say. I want the original. She said, oh, well, there's no original. And I went, what? You know, so like, there's no original? You know, what kind of a God is it who gives us scriptures but doesn't give us the original? So all, you know, that, so- <laughs> all of that at the bottom
0: of the page is just all the different fragments that they found. Right. They're they're telling you, yeah,
1: they're telling you what these different fragments say, or, you know, something is maybe spelled differently this way, or has an extra word over here in this line. And uh, so there's a whole manuscript family, you know, of, of what's going on behind the text. And again, my, my way of thinking about God was that God would have given us an original. (laughs) The one thing. Yeah. Uh, That's not the way it works. You know, so, so does that destroy my faith, you know, or does it change it? You know, so now I have to develop a broader faith that says, how could God work in such a way that he entrusts this to human beings? You know, that's not the way I would do it if I were God, but I'm not God. Right. <laughs> so uh, it's it's always a process for me, at least, of uh, stepping back and seeing the how big God is. Uh, all the, you know, that God is the other, God uses other ways of achieving things than, than I would. And so this is, uh, again, why it's been such a profound faith journey for me, you know, and how much I learned from seeing other people and, and seeing their relationship with the divine, the sacred, the other.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Brian Schmiesik, professor and dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, The Rome of Peter and Paul, A Pilgrim's Guide to New Testament Sites in the Eternal City. We're also talking about his work at the Institute itself and how he has been shaped and how it is shaping theology for the 21st century. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to things not seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest and a professor of theology here in Chicago and That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Brian Shmisek, professor and dean of the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, The Rome of Peter and Paul, A Pilgrim's Guide to New Testament Sites in the Eternal City. We're also talking about the Institute of Pastoral Studies itself and how it is looking to address the needs of the church in the 21st century. And so when a student is coming to the Institute for Pastoral Studies, what can they be expecting in terms of their overall educational experience? So they will arrive, first of all, do they have to have faith when they come here? Uh, I went to a seminary where you had to be a Christian in order to even matriculate as a student. So first of all, is that a basic requirement? No. Okay. So they can come <laughs> here, they can, but, but one might ask why an atheist would come to a, a school with, a, with such a Catholic... Uh, orientation. Okay. But so, uh, in what ways will their faith be deepened? So do you have, uh, required worship here? Do you have, uh, ways that they can, is there, is there a, a prayer life here at the Institute or is that, is it incumbent
1: upon the students to build that aspect of their education into the curriculum? So that's really good. We have something called a formation program, you know, which is, um, something that we're always trying to make better, you know, but something that people can access if they want, if they want it. Uh, that formation program would involve a lot of prayer sessions that the Loyola University of Chicago already offers, you know, so it's not like IPS is having morning and evening prayer, but we, we make available to folks uh, what Loyola is already doing. Loyola already has uh, retreats, you know, so we make those available to our students. Uh, some of our students who are going to be pastoral counselors might want to receive pastoral counseling themselves, you know, so they can have that available to them. Those of our students who are going to be spiritual directors might want a spiritual director themselves. So that's available to them. That's part of their uh, formation program.
0: So when you talk about these things like pastoral counseling and spiritual direction, for Mm -hmm. my listeners who may not understand what those things are, what's pastoral
1: counseling? What's spiritual direction? Right. So pastoral counseling, you know, one way to talk about it is a we call it spiritually integrated mental health. <laughs> so, you know, I, I kind of laugh because in some ways, you know, we have to, uh, in order to subscribe to that, you'd have to recognize or, or somehow maintain that being spiritually integrated is a good, you know, is something that that you want. <laughs> and it's, uh, sometimes in, uh, you know, the modern world, it's so easy to just, uh, you know, go to the DSM to, and look something up and say, this is, you know, this is the diagnosis. Uh, but in a, in a pastoral counseling program, you not only have those skills, you, you have to, you know, you have to have those skills, but you're also, you know, paying attention to somebody's spirit. You know, where, where is your spirit? What's life-giving for you? What's not life-giving for you? You know, those are very Ignatian questions as well. And uh, so somebody is more than a diagnosis, of course, you know, that we're looking at the whole person. And that's why we call it spiritually integrated mental health. And so, uh,
0: so uh, you mentioned that a student who's coming here, who was going to be studying pastoral counseling, or who was going to be studying spiritual direction, may want to avail themselves of those of those programs. And so, it sounds like a student coming to the Institute for Pastoral Studies is going to have a very full array of options in terms of their development, both as a scholar but also in terms of their development
1: as a whole human being. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly it, right. And I think a lot of that comes back to our Ignatian identity, you know, the, the fact that we're a Jesuit school, and we do make a conscious effort to attend to the whole person. And so
0: when you see students that have gone through the program and they come back after they've graduated as alumni – What sorts of things are they doing? What is the variety we can expect from graduates
1: of IPS? Yeah, so I think it really comes down to what degree plan they were in. (laughs) So if they were in the pastoral counseling program, they're probably a licensed counselor somewhere now, you know, in private practice or in practice with a group, uh, seeing clients and and making a living like that. Other folks who uh, have a degree in healthcare chaplaincy are probably out in a hospital setting somewhere in a hospice program. Uh, and doing that full-time and uh, making a living at it. Um, Other folks, you know, who are doing a degree in, let's say, pastoral studies with a focus area in religious education might be working in a parish setting, and they're very happy, you know, as a a parish employee. Um, Other folks might be, again, doing this extra ecclesial ministry of uh, social justice, you know, and making a difference in the marketplace. So it, it really depends on somebody's degree plan, uh, where they're going to be, you know, after they complete their education here. And so you've devoted your life to a, a type of religious
0: education and, and you have trained in it, you have studied for it, and now you are an administrator overseeing the growth of the Institute for Pastoral Studies. I can see that that would be a very rewarding position. I can also see where that in some ways would be a kind of frustrating position. And so it's my habit to ask my guests kind of what frustrates them and then what gives them hope. And so I'm going to start out by saying, what is it now that you've begun to see greater success with the growth of IPS here at Loyola University Chicago? What is it that still you wish that you could accomplish or what is it that still frustrates you?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's so much hope that I see. (laughs) So one is that... um, we're re- recording on uh, Tuesday, and uh, the day before, yesterday, uh, we just launched a program in England. It's an online program. It's called a customized professional certificate in pastoral ministry. Uh, the Catholic Church in England wants a way to educate lay people for ministry, uh, and they they reached out and talked to us about it. And uh, I was there last year a couple times, and we fashioned a, a relationship. And now we're launching those programs. So this is a two-year certificate program. Uh, There are 50 people going through this program. We're delivering it online. We have strong liaisons on the ground there in England, and we're looking forward to really good, uh, really good outcomes there. So that's something that's very life-giving and gives me a lot of hope. You know, one one of the challenges is that um, uh, education is still expensive. (laughs) So we've made a commitment here Uh, not to raise tuition for the foreseeable future. For the last two years, we have not raised tuition at IPS. Uh, We've also secured even more scholarship and grant funds to help our students. So ideally, you know, we have, I think, over 90% of the students who request financial aid from us, you know, receive it from us. So IPS is able to provide a lot of financial aid. And I think that's uh, mostly because, you know, the Jesuits are committed to what we're doing with, uh, with IPS. They see this as a mission-driven institute. And so that's, that's been, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenge, but it's also very hopeful that, that we have some resources to help. And so it sounds like you
0: answered both my questions, both the what's the the frustration, but what's also the hope right there in that in that one thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Brian, Chmicek, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And it just sounds like there's amazing things that are happening at the Institute for Pastoral Studies here at Loyola University, Chicago. And thank you for taking a bit of time to talk about both your scholarly work and also your work as an administrator here in the IPS. Thank you, David. It's been great. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijit. Our show was made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's patreo dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.